Welcome. Uh, so there really should be two people on, on stage here. Um, Barb is, um, has been, um, she's, not, she's not only my life partner, she's my research collaborator uh, on this. Without her, there wouldn't have been any um, IARPA forecasting tournaments uh, with, the with the intelligence community. Um, it's hard to say uh, where, where her, her work ends and my work begins often in the IARPA project. Um, my rule of thumb is that uh, Barb does the deep scientific work and I do the public relations. So that's, our, that's the division of labor. <laughs> Um, should also thank John and um, his crew for all, all their help, uh, Katinka, Max, Nina, and Russell. And um, then I wanted to say a few words um, about uh, Danny Kahneman and, and his role in, in, in all this. Um, I'm not sure he remembers all the different things he's done over the last uh, 25, 30 years um, in the, uh, to facilitate all of this. but. Um, <clears throat> In the beginning, I was doing very small-scale forecasting tournaments. Uh, I was uh, at Berkeley, and uh, I remember in the late 1980s, I don't know if Danny remembers, but he uh, went to Chicago to the MacArthur Foundation to argue for it. MacArthur should be supporting forecasting tournaments, and they did eventually uh, come up with something, not as nearly as much as I, I, I wanted, but they, they, they came up with something. Uh, so uh, that, that was very helpful. But I'll, just conversations with Danny through the years have, have been very helpful in thinking about this. Um, we, we had a lunch at a Chinese restaurant, I think it was called Yen Ching in Berkeley in, in the late 1980s. And he, had, he offhandedly tossed off this remark um, that he thought that the average expert, average uh, political expert, uh, would be hard pressed to beat uh, in a forecasting tournament an attentive reader of the New York Times. And that's been a benchmark that uh, some of my political science colleagues have been struggling to beat <laughs> ever, ever, ever since. And he also um, has been very helpful, I think, in trying to persuade the intelligence community to take seriously the lessons of the forecasting tournament. So he did Amtrak down to DC with me last year to talk to the National Intelligence Council and the Director of National Intelligence about the value of explicitly keeping score, um, explicit probability scoring, learning from feedback, uh, these might seem like truisms to scientists, but they're, they're really still quite radical, even revolutionary ideas in much of the, much, in much of the intelligence community. So I'm not, I'm not implying that he agrees with everything I'm going to say. I think we, we certainly have some differences of opinion, and I'm probably more, more of an optimist than he is than, than, than on, on, the, on, the, on the degree to which people will ultimately embrace these um, technologies. But uh, he has been very helpful, so thank you. And I'm going to start this conversation off with a couple of stories uh, and that I think provide a nice point of entry into the 130 slides that you have in front of you in this notebook. And I'll also offer the reassurance that I have no intention of frog marching you through all 130 slides. Uh, as issues come up, we might refer to particular things in here, uh, but we're not going to go through these slides one by one. It would be really useful if we went around the table because I'm having a very hard time pe seeing people beyond about the middle. Just. Uh... <laughs> Your name, what you do, uh, in 30 seconds or less. Bob Axelrod, political scientist from Michigan. Uh, I do game theory and national security. Uh, Danny Halutz, I'm an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Kahneman, I'm a psychologist. And Treesman, I'm another psychologist. Saw a kindergarten on the last year, but my last role was leading YouTube for Google, uh, which I did for about five years. 
well, good name. I, I used to work for Google as well and a uh, political activist and now uh, working for a uh, startup called Party. Ludwig Ziegler, I'm a journalist. I cover technology for The Economist. Andrea Krey, I am a journalist and I run the Fate of the Arts and Essays section for the Süddeutsche Zeitung in Germany. I'm Brian Christian, I'm a writer, and I write about mostly the intersection of computer science and philosophy. Katinka Matson, co-founder of Edge. Uh, Max Brockman, here at Edge. In came I'm uh, an Edge groupie, uh, but I'm not doing that, I make stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm D.A. Wallach, I'm a musician and investor. I'm Rodney Brooks, I'm a reformed academic and I make robots. I'm Rory Sutherland, I work for Pendley and Mather in London, the advertising agency, and also write on technology for The Spectator. I'm uh, Peter Lee, I uh, work at a place called Microsoft Research, and I guess I'm a corrupted academic. Corrupted by Jennifer Jackwood, pure, boring academic, uh, environmental social scientist. Uh, John Brothman, editor of Edge. Stuart Brand, the Now Foundation, and Revive and Restore for the extension. Margaret Levy, director, Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, CASBIS, as it's affectionately known, and a political scientist. Barb Miller's psychologist at UPenn. Um, so I, I said I would start off with a couple of stories, and I'm, I, I, that's exactly what I'll do. Uh, so the first story is about uh, President Obama and uh, the search for Osama bin Laden. Uh, and in 2010, early 2011, evidence was gradually accumulating about the location of Osama bin Laden. Um, the intelligence community was growing more confident. They knew, they knew where he was. And as the confidence grew, uh, they, they, start, they, they started reporting higher, higher up in the hierarchy. They reported to Leon Panetta, then director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and eventually directly to P President Obama. And they made presentations to both of these men. Uh, and in these presentations, um, they made probability judgments about the likelihood that Osama was indeed residing in that mysterious walled up compound in the Pakistani uh, town of Abbottabad. And um, uh, in the case, uh, there's a version of this in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, which we checked out with some, Dan did a great job checking out with the uh, people who were actually there. So that, that don't, don't believe the movie. <laughs> but the movie's not too far off in, on this, in, this, in this particular. Um, they went around the table asking the advisors, uh, the intelligence officers, what they thought the likelihood was of Osama being there. And the probabilities range from about 35% to 95% with a median of about 0.75, so 75%. And uh, President Obama looked a little bit frustrated, and he said, hmm, well, you know, it seems, seems like it's a coin flip, 50-50. Um, and that, that was that, uh, for, that, for, that for the purposes of that meeting. Um, now, I want to bracket this question. Did President Obama utilize the probabilities in the right way? Did he draw the right conclusion or inference from, from the information displayed uh, in that, in, in, in that uh, meeting? Uh, but be, be, so bracket that question and now move to a thought experiment, a thought experiment in which uh, President Obama has the advisors around him 
and the advisors, instead of offering a dispersion of probability estimates, the advisors um, all say the same thing. They all say 75%. Now, let's also say that the advisors, let's stipulate for our thought experiment, that the advisors uh, have overcome the siloization problem that the US intelligence community was severely criticized for after 9-11, the, the, the notion that they weren't sharing information enough. So overcoming siloization means uh, that each advisor knows what every other advisor knows. They all know the same thing. They've all conferred. And what, what, what probability should uh, President Obama take from that? And in, 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 so in effect, I'm stipulating that the advisors are clones of each, intellectual clones of each other. They're cognitive clones of each other. So the probability is presumptively 75%. It's as if one person were speaking to them. Um, but then imagine um, a version in which they, all the advisors say the same thing. Each says 75%. But they haven't overcome the siloization problem. Uh, one advisor, uh, one official has access to satellite reconnaissance. Another has code breaking. Another has spies on the ground. Another has cell phone stuff. Um, they, all, they have different information, and they've, they're siloized. And they say 75%. Um, what's the correct probabilistic inference in this situation? Um, and the answer is mathematically indeterminate. I haven't given you enough information to answer it. Uh, but it is something that can be statistically estimated. And Barb and, and, and uh, our, our the top statistician for our project, Lyle Ungar, um, and other people have um, developed algorithms uh, for uh, estimating the extent to which you should adjust your probability uh, when you have um, diverse inputs into an estimate. Um, does everyone have an intuition about the answer here? Is depends on the correlation among the information. It, it, it depends on the correlation among the information, but we're assuming some, some, some diversity and a moderately low correlation. It's got to be higher than 75. It's got to be higher than 75. But how much higher is indeterminate because we have, don't, have, don't have enough information. Uh, but it is something that if you're running a forecasting tournament over an extended period of time and you had, say, 500 plus questions and thousands of forecasters and you have estimates of diversity and, and you have estimates of accuracy over long periods of time, um, you can work out um, um, algorithms that do a better job of distilling the wisdom of the crowd than, say, simple averaging. Uh, it sounds risky, but it, it's an algorithm known as extremizing, and it works out, it works out pretty well. Um, let's do it. So let's, those are all thought experiments, right, with, with everybody saying the same thing 75%. So let's, if you go back to the real world in which President Obama got the dispersion of estimates, um, Imagine another situation. President Obama is sitting down with friends, uh, and they're relaxing, and they're watching a March Madness basketball game. He's a fan of March Madness. Um, and there's going to be a game between uh, Duke University and Ohio State. And the people around him make estimates of the probability of Duke winning. And the estimates are exactly like the estimates uh, we got on Osama. They start around 35%, they go up to 95%, the center of gravity around 75%. Um, do you think President Obama would have said, when his buddies offer these odds estimates, uh, sounds like 50-50 to me? Or would he have said something like, hmm, sounds like 3 to 1, favoring Duke? 3 to 1 favoring Duke. So it's an interesting fact that um, 
in very high stakes national security debates and many other types of high stakes policy debates as well, um, people don't think it's possible to make very granular probability estimates. Uh, sometimes they seem to act as though things are going to happen, there's maybe and things aren't going to happen. Sometimes they act as though there might, there'll be only three levels of uncertainty. Sometimes they might act as if there is five or seven. Um, one of the things we found in the IARPA forecasting tournaments is that uh, super forecasters uh, collectively can distinguish many more degrees of uncertainty even than seven. Uh, and it's an interesting question of how, how useful is that? Um, let's bracket that also for later. Um, but it is, it is possible to make uh, more subtle and granular distinctions among degrees of uncertainty on questions that are of interest to the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, that's, I think, an empirical demonstration from the ARPA tournaments. I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty solid. Um, and it, 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 and, it, and the, the juxtaposition of President Obama on the Osama problem and on the March Madness problem illustrates that it's not that he can't think in a granular way about probability. He, he may be implicitly thinking it's impossible to think in a granular way about national security, or it's not even normatively appropriate to become all that granular in the national security domain. There, there are different norms, different epistemic norms seem to govern what it is or is not appropriate to say about uncertainty. Now in the handout that accompanies the, the slides, I've got a page in which I pose the question, what are the limits on probabilistic reasoning? Do you know? Does anyone know? So. It's fair to say, I think, that uh, the vast majority of uh, college-educated people believe that probability theory is useful in estimating the likelihood of a fair coin landing heads five times in a row. They think it's, well, probability theory is useful if you're playing poker and you're, you're drawing cards from a well-defined sampling universe. Um, these are classic domains for frequentist statistics. Um, the question we're confronting here is what are the limits on the usefulness of probability? To what extent is it useful to elicit probability judgments for quote-unquote seemingly unique uh, historical events? Um, now on this page I list a number of um, situations in which people find it vexing to make probability judgments. Uh, the first one is, is there intelligent life elsewhere in the Milky Way? Uh, I don't know, you know, there's Drake's formula and there are various, various ways of trying to guesstimate things like this, um, but I don't, I don't think I personally can do much better than say, I, don't, I certainly don't think it's impossible, um, and I don't think it's 100% certain either, so it's somewhere between 0 .0001 and 0 .9999, but can I do appreciably better than that? Is granularity possible? Well, as Kepler keeps discovering more planets, and we find more planets in habitable zones, and eventually we can pick up atmospheric signatures of oxygen and so forth in the atmospheres, eventually we might, get, get, we might start changing our estimates, but we, we still, we're still at such an early stage, I don't think I can do much better better than that. Um, then there's a lot of other questions that are listed here, and I, I, we don't need to go through each of them now, um, but the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind is, um, can the probabilities of these types of questions, um, can the answers be meaningfully guesstimated? Uh, and on, on which ones do you think it is possible to offer meaningful guesstimates? On which ones don't you think it's possible, and why? Because that's essentially a question about the limits uh, of the usefulness of something like an IARPA forecasting tournament. 
IARPA is, in a sense, stretching the limits of the usefulness of probability. Okay, that's one story I wanted to use to capture one of, one of, the, one of the big issues we'll be grappling with. Uh, the second story is the story with which Dan and I begin the super forecasting book, and it's the parable of Tom Friedman and Bill Flack. It's a tale of two forecasters. Uh, everybody around this table knows who Tom Friedman is. He's this world-famous New York Times columnist, award-winning columnist, award-winning... Um, um, Anyway, so Tom is a regular at, at Davos on CNN. He was in the White House. He's, he's been in the White House many times, in the Oval Office many times. Recently, who, uh, uh, Barack Obama gave him a privileged interview access on the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, this is not an unusual event in the life of Tom Friedman. Um, so that's Tom Friedman. And, and then there's this guy, Bill Flack. And Bill Flack is... Um, He's a retired irrigation specialist. He'd, he'd worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in, in, in Nebraska. Um, he has no track record of, um, of writing on world politics. He's never been invited to sit on a panel with, with Tom Friedman or, or, for that matter, anybody else. Um, and, and, and the question is, who is likely to be a better forecaster? And you can bracket that question also. You don't have to answer it out. Answered out loud. Um, now, this is something where, where, where Danny Kahneman's attribution substitution heuristic starts to come into play in a in a big way. Uh, there's obviously no doubt in our minds about who is higher in the academic or policy social pecking order. I mean, Tom Friedman is one of the most famous, well-connected journalists in the world, and Bill Flack, let's face it, is 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 a nobody in Nebraska. Uh, who's, you know, and so um, there's also no doubt about who is um, the more acclaimed and prolific writer on uh, topics that are relevant to the IARPA tournament. Um, and Tom, Tom is good at turning a phrase. And, and there, there are some, he's written some wonderful columns, in my opinion. Uh, one of his particularly uh, insightful columns was one he wrote in late 2002, before the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And he posed a question. He said, is Iraq the way it is because Saddam is the way he is? Or is Saddam the way he is because Iraq is the way it is? I think that's a brilliant question. Uh, I think it would have been helpful if the US administration had given much deeper thought to that question. Uh, Tom Friedman didn't know the answer to that question, by the way. But he was able to formulate it in a, in a, in a, in a very interesting way. Um, uh, more recently, uh, as when oil prices plunged in 2014, Tom Friedman wrote a very interesting piece on uh, the correlation between uh, price of oil and instability, political instability in petrostates like Venezuela or Iran. Um, he also talked about the role of the oil price collapse in the 1980s and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, so he's written a lot of interesting things. And he's written um, his book, The, the Lexus and the Olive Tree. Uh, it it, it you know, synthesizes globalization arguments with arguments about um, our cultural, religious groundedness in specific places and the tension between those, those forces. Um, he's written a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, he's, 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 a, he's a good storyteller. He can go from micro to macro, macro to micro, really fast, seemingly seamlessly. He's, he's very good at this. Um, 
And by contrast, you know, Bill Flack um, has, has no, no track record of writing interesting things like this. So if you were to use uh, Danny's attribution substitution heuristic, if you were to think in system one rather than system two mode about the problem, um, you, you might be inclined to slip into thinking, well, hmm, is Tom Friedman a better forecaster? Well, I don't really know. Uh, but I do know that he's got a lot higher status. He, he, he has a lot more clout at the Council of Foreign Relations. Um, he sold a lot more books. Um, uh, he, there are a lot of reasons for believing. What the attribution substitution heuristic is, you take a really hard question, like is Tom a better forecaster? And uh, you uh, seamlessly substitute an easier question you can answer. And then you act as though the answer to the easier question is, has, is also an answer to the harder question. Uh, and a lot of this can occur very quickly, automatically, um, this, this, this kind of substitution. Uh, people do find it somewhat vexing to be asked questions that are unresolvable, and they, they, there is this kind of um, irritable reaching for certainty, as one poet famously once put it. Uh, of course, the right answer to, to, the, to the question, is Tom Friedman a better forecaster, is nobody knows. But it's easy to get snookered by the attribution substitution heuristic. Now, there are, there are some interesting counterarguments. Uh, and one of them is, well, okay, um, I still think the rational answer is Tom Friedman. I, I don't know what Tom Friedman's forecasting record is, but I do know that he has high status, and I do know that he has writing skill. And I'm going to make a bet, uh, an epistemic bet, as it were, that um, uh, the, these, these skills, the status and the writing skills, are pos at least positively correlated with, with uh, forecasting skill. You could, you, could, you could argue that. Um, now, it turns out, though, and we know this from the AR tournament that you know, Barb and I worked on for a number of years now. We also knew this from the, my earlier forecasting work as well, that the correlation between uh, your ability to tell a good explanatory story and your forecasting accuracy is rather weak. Uh, so it's not as strong an argument as you might think. Uh, even if it is positive, uh, it's not all that strong. Um, and um, so, and there's a very powerful countervailing reason for believing that Bill Flack is a better forecaster. And that is because Bill Flack is um, a scientifically documented, officially certified IARPA tournament super forecaster. Uh, he did a great job assigning probability estimates to hundreds of questions posed over uh, four years in the IARPA forecasting tournament. Uh, he was a superb performance. Um, this is with neutral umpires, uh, no room for fudging. Uh, this is objective scoring. Um, so it's quite possible that Tom Friedman is a better forecaster, um, which, which, excuse me, but the, <laughs> Bill, Bill, Bill Flack is a better forecaster. And that, I guess, it brings us to what I see as a, a core paradox in the super forecasting book, and that is, why is it that, why is it that we know um, so much about Bill Flack's forecasting record and so little about Tom Friedman's. Um, and why is it that most of the time we don't even know that we don't know that and we don't even seem to care? Um, is, that a, is that a satisfactory intellectual state of affairs? Is that, is that, a, is that a good way to be conducting high-stakes policy debates uh, by relying on proxies like social status, the ability to tell a good story uh, in uh, determining who has the most impact on, uh, on the policy debates.
Well, I'll just say one more thing about this. Uh, you know, Tom Friedman often, if you read Tom Friedman's columns carefully, you'll see that he does make a lot of implicit predictions. Um, and uh, he warned us, for example, uh, early in the Clinton administration, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that expanding NATO eastward could trigger a uh, nasty Russian nationalist backlash. Um, he's warned us about a number of things, and he uses the language of could or may, that various things could or might happen. Uh, when you ask people what do could or might mean in isolation, they mean anything from about 0.1 probability to about 0.85 probability. They have a vast range of possible meanings. Uh, this means that it's virtually impossible to assess the empirical track record of Tom Friedman. And Tom Friedman is by no means alone. Uh, it's not at all unusual for pundits to make extremely forceful claims about violent nationalist backlashes or impending regime collapses in this or that place, uh, but to riddle it with um, vague verbiage quantifiers of uncertainty that could mean anything from 0.1 to 0.9. Um, so um, it is as though um, pundits, high status pundits, have learned a valuable survival skill. And that survival skill is they've mastered the art of a period to go out on a limb without actually going out on a limb. Um, they, they, um, they say dramatic things, but they're vague verbiage quantifiers connected to the dramatic things. So it sounds as though they're saying something very compelling and riveting. There's a scenario that's been conjured up in your mind of something either very good or very bad. It's vivid. It's easily imaginable. Um, but it turns out on close inspection, they're not really saying that's going to happen. They're not specifying the conditions or a time frame or a likelihood. So there's no way of actually assessing accuracy. Now you could say these, these pundits are just doing what a rational pundit would do because they, they know that they live in a somewhat stochastic world. Uh, they know that they're in, they're, it's a world that frequently is going to throw up surprises at them. So to maintain their credibility with their community of co-believers, to maintain that uh, credibility, they need to, they need to be vague. It's, it's an essential survival skill. And I think there's some considerable truth to that. I think that's a, um, and forecasting tournaments are a very different way of proceeding. Forecasting tournaments require people to attach uh, explicit probabilities to well-defined outcomes and well-defined time frames so you can keep score. Um, so these are two, these are very different ways of doing business. Uh, there's the traditional status hierarchy, and then there is the, um, the forecasting tournament. And uh, the, 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 the phrase we use in the book uh, is we, we say that forecasting tournaments are uh, a disruptive technology uh, because they have the potential to destabilize stale status hierarchies that are dominated by people who are really good at telling uh, uh, explanatory stories after the fact but aren't very good at predicting. Phil, you invited some of these pundits to participate in the tournaments. What's their response? We have indeed. Uh, Dan Gardner insisted that we do that. <laughs> and, and, the, and the response was very unenthusiastic. There was a small number of people who were willing to participate if they could be totally anonymous. But uh, a 90% plus uh, turned it down. <laughs> in interesting ways or kind of just stupid, obvious ways? Um, I mean, how, how much did they engage the problem? Well, well Dan, Dan, Dan was fielding that correspondence, so I don't know, if I, I, did, I didn't go through it in detail, but my, 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 my sense is that a large fraction of them didn't even bother to respond, uh, and that uh, another fraction offered uh, somewhat polite but dismissive responses. Uh, 
what we you know what you know I don't I'm sorry I don't have the time but also interestingly some of them offered a defense that I I, I think is is really wrong-headed and that is I, I say I don't really make predictions it's not what I do I'm not in the prediction business did um, any of them besides David Brooks ever refer to your work then in their own columns yes and I'm, well I, I don't want to talk about the specific people we invited or didn't invite but um, uh, no a number of journalists have have have, have, have I, actually, I, don't, I know of no, I mean, so it's, this, this work's been written up by a number of pretty high-profile high journalists, and I know I have yet to see a negative review of the work. So they have not been hostile toward the work, um, although I think that may change. The fairness, nevertheless, it would be a, a large commitment of time. I, I'm sorry. It I'm would be a large commitment of time to be in this answer these 400 or 500 questions. Right, but you don't have to answer them all. Uh, you, 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 you could get reasonable accuracy feedback if you were over the course of a year or so to answer 50. Or... So all of the participants were totally volunteers. They weren't paid. Um, the description of how the forecasting tournament itself worked um, begins um, 15. Sorry, clearing the scientific or clearing the conceptual underbrush, uh, the things you need, the things you need to work out in order to do a forecasting tournament. It's not, you know, it's not as though the U.S. intelligence community exists in a world in which they're not held <coughs> accountable uh, for the judgments they make. It's the type of accountability. It's 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 capricious. Um, it's it's designed to induce shame if they get it if they get something big wrong. Uh, where getting something big wrong can mean uh, it can be defined very expansively. Uh, so, did the intelligence community miss 9/11? Well, they did create a memorandum that went to Condi Rice a few months before then, saying Bin Laden planning to attack the United States. Um, that wasn't that didn't say they were going to smash airliners into b b buildings in the Pentagon and um, and, and New York City, um, but it did offer a warning of sorts, um, but the intelligence community, for better or for worse, was held responsible for missing 9-11. Um, that would be a false negative judgment. Uh, they were subsequently held responsible for overestimating weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, overestimating the likelihood of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That's a false positive error. Um, so um, one of the things about learning in Washington, D.C. and the intelligence community is, is if you're going to make a mistake, make sure you don't make the last mistake. So if you, if, you're, if you make the mistake of missing something, missing a threat, make sure you don't miss another one. And if you make the mistake of having a false positive on a threat, make sure you don't make another false positive right away. Uh, show at least that you're responsive to, to the political blame game calculus. Um, so we use the term accountability ping pong, that the intelligence community in some sense is whacked back and forth from making one error to the other. Um, that is a form of learning, I suppose, uh, in a very simple sense. Um, but it's not the kind of learning that we're aspiring to achieve in the ARPA forecasting tournament. We're trying to learn to achieve a higher hit rate at, um, um, we're trying to improve our hit rate without simultaneously degrading our, 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 um, our resistance to false positives. It's also presumably true that actually making correct predictions is only part of what the intelligence community is there for. Yes. It's also there for coming up with stories that support whatever the decision is. Yes. Storytelling is indeed 
arguably uh, the basis on which analysts are ultimately uh, promoted or seriously segmented. Yes. Yeah. Intelligence community would take some would be offended a little bit yep. by what you said, Danny, because um, they, they 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 see themselves as as, as a objective. They, they, they see themselves, in principle, as speaking truth to power. Right. Uh, they're not there in a justification role. And the, the, except for the very top. Except for the very top. Right. Who are you know, political appointees. I, I feel a bit bad for Tom Friedman here. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm sorry, just a little louder. I, I, I'm feeling a little bad for Tom Friedman here. Good. Um, and let me, let me put a poser. When you can isolate things down to the sorts of questions on the last page here, which are all very well-formed mm -hmm. um, questions. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing, but there's an ultimate argument that the sorts of things Tom Friedman is doing is finding out what the questions are, yes. and that he is living in a world where the opponents are doing the same sort of thing. You know, is, is, uh, you know, is North Korea asking these crisp questions, or are they telling the stories themselves too, for yes. instance? So yeah. it's a much more complex dynamic. It, and I'll, I'll just step yeah. back. In my own world right now, I am besieged by people asking me a question which I refuse to answer, and they get very angry at me for refusing to answer, mm -hmm. uh, because other people keep answering. The question is, in what year will we have human-level equivalence intelligence from computers? Mm -hmm. And I say, it's an ill-formed question. And they say, but everyone else answers it. And I, I think they answer it for now, they shouldn't answer because it's ill-formed. Right, right. Now, the RFID questions, of course, are not ill-formed in that sense because they, they pass the clairvoyance test. Uh, the clairvoyance test means that uh, we, if the question is so well-framed that if you handed it to a genuine clairvoyant who could see perfectly into the future, the clairvoyant could look into the future, say, thumbs up or thumbs down, without needing to come back to you for some uh, ex post facto re-specification of what the question was. Uh, so the question, the problem you're, you're having there is, 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 is a question that fails the clairvoyance test. But I couldn't agree more with the sentiment you're expressing about Tom Friedman as um, a creative question generator. We, 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 we move away from the Tom versus Bill tension uh, to Tom and Bill. Um, and, um, but it, it, is a, it is a Tom and Bill symbiosis. A healthy intellectual tournament ecosystem requires people who are creative question generators as much as it does people who are skillful at generating accurate probability estimates. And some of the examples I gave you earlier about petrostate instability or is Iraq the way it is because Saddam is the way he is or vice versa, uh, those, those, are, those are really smart questions. Uh, now, they, they're not questions that are quite ready for forecasting tournament application because they don't pass the clairvoyance test yet. Uh, but they're moving in that direction. And uh, I, I think one of the most valuable collaborations that could be facilitated, and if, that, if, if, if this were a partial outcome of this gathering, I would consider it enormously successful, would be um, uh, creating a, a, a framework for encouraging the Tom Friedmans of the world uh, to play as question generators uh, in forecasting tournaments um, and, um, and agreeing that um, if, if, if questions resolve in a certain way within a certain time period, they would at least make some marginal adjustments to their beliefs. Uh, so Tom Friedman is a, a, a cautious supporter of the Iranian nuclear agreement right now. Uh, you could imagine 
uh, posing a series of questions about very res resolvable questions in the next 12 to 24 months about how the Iranian nuclear agreement unfolds uh, that would cause either skeptics of the agreement or proponents of the agreement to change their mind somewhat. Now, what does change their mind mean? Well, it doesn't mean going from yes to no. It might mean going from, I think there's a 0.85 chance that the Iranians are not going to develop a nuclear weapon in secret, or they're not going to cheat in this way or that way on the agreement. I think there's a point moving that moving from 0.85 to 0.6 or to 0.75. Or, um, belief change is often, among the best forecasters in the Arab tournament, belief change tends to be quite granular. Um, they think that Hillary Clinton has a 60% chance of being the next president of the United States today. And then some information comes out from the uh, State Department Inspector General about Hillary's emails and her possible culpability for her e email policy. Uh, OK, I, I think I'm going to move it down to 0.58 now. Um, super, that's, that's the sort of thing super forecasters do. And the cumulative result is that their probability scores, as defined in, this, in these handouts here and in, and in the book, their probability scores are much better. Uh, the gaps between their probability judgments and reality are smaller, where you dummy code reality as zero or one, depending on whether the event didn't occur or did occur. Uh, um, sort of along the same lines, uh, trying to, um, I, I doubt that Tom Friedman is thinking this way, but one reason to waffle a little bit is you're telling a story about some topic of wide interest, but to make a forecast for that, there's some Bayesian process or some set of conditional probabilities mm -hmm. where some of those nodes might be 50-50 and then it becomes, depending on how those earlier events turn out, you might have very definitive forecasts for the, for the, for the final event of interest. Right. Uh, I, I certainly agree that we're talking about complex causal networks that could, in principle, be represented as Bayesian inference diagrams. I think that's, that, that's right. Uh, I think uh, some of the question clusters we've been developing in the ARPA tournament are moving in that direction. Uh, it's, in the ARPA tournament to date, what we have done is we've asked conditional questions. So if US policy, if US policy goes in toward A or B, how likely is a given consequence? Now, this allows us to assess the accuracy in the world in which one of the other policies is implemented. So we, let's say policy A is chosen, we know what happens. Now, interestingly, we don't know what would have happened if we'd done policy B. That's in the realm of counterfactual. And this is one of the great limitations in our ability to learn to become better calibrated in historical environment, because history doesn't offer control groups. Everything is counterfactual. Uh, and, and in policy debates, we have this really pretty perverse situation in which people routinely in make up the data. They routinely invent convenient counterfactual control groups that make the policies they prefer look good. So it's even possible to take a policy like, say, the invasion of Iraq, uh, which almost everybody has bailed on. But you could construct a counterfactual that says, well, you know what? You, you think things are bad now. You have no idea how bad they how bad they would have been if Saddam had stayed in power. So there were people who argued for, you know, defended the Vietnam War or the Iraq War uh, on, on on those grounds, even after most most opinion had bailed bailed out. Um, but counterfactuals are an, a very interesting and integral part. And the third session of of, of this series will will deal with um, counterfactual inference um, in, in policy debates. Just to say, I, I would be very interested in knowing to see how to win the next Super Bowl. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Well, there, and there are benchmarks out there, right? I mean, there, 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 there must be Las Vegas bookies and so forth. There, 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 there may be prediction markets. There are, there are benchmarks that we could use to start our make, engage our initial probability estimation process. Yeah.